sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Democrats have come up with a lot of very radical ideas recently. They want to eliminate the Electoral College, pack the Supreme Court, a universal health care. But this prison precinct plan is going a little bit too far. Medicare for all would eliminate private health insurance companies. Medicare for all would require middle-class Americans to pay much more in taxes. We don't conduct criminal investigations just to collect information and put it out to the public. We do so to make a decision. And the deputy and I felt that the evidence developed by the special counsel was not sufficient to establish that the president committed a crime, and therefore it would be irresponsible and unfair for the department to release a report without stating the department's conclusions. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here. If you would like to call in, I'm still taking calls. 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. We have Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation coming on to talk about and this. This is, you know, we got to unpack this from the legal aspect. He's perfect senior legal fellow from the Heritage Foundation to talk about felons voting, what this entails, what the what what the reasoning is behind this, what it looks like, you know, lawfully, constitutionally, et cetera. He'll be on to talk about that with us next segment. Right now, um, I want to point you over to just just in case you're wondering, we did a little bit of chitter chatter on the show about the chocolate soldier. And I said I would post that link. I forgot to, but I just put it up. Are you a chocolate soldier? It's from wholesomewords.org, chocolate soldier by CT Stud Worldwide Missions. Now, I want to catch up a little bit um, talking about, well, actually, you know what? Let's, let's go straight to this federal spending expert because we had all these questions about Social Security and the caller who wanted to defend Bernie Sanders. You got to listen to this. And then this is a segment of the show that you could clip out on YouTube and share on your Facebook page or play it while someone who needs to hear it is nearby. This is not a partisan individual who's speaking. He just crunches numbers for the federal government. He's a federal spending expert. This is all he does all day and all night. This is his job. Listen to him talk about financing Medicare for all. It's number one. Medicare for all would add somewhere between $32.6 trillion and $38.8 trillion in new federal budget costs over the first 10 years. The $32.6 trillion estimate is a lower bound estimate. It essentially assumes every cost containment provision in the bill saves as much as possible. If instead things play out more consistently with historical trends, the new federal costs would be closer to $38.8 trillion. And I'll say more about the specific assumptions later. Now, obviously, such enormous numbers are very difficult to grasp. We're talking about 11 to 13 percent of our GDP in 2022, rising to 13 to 15 percent of GDP in 2031, being added to the federal ledger. And we simply do not have historical experience with permanent government expansions of this size. He's saying that the expansion of government would have to be so outsized, so enormous. And if you just just think about it for a second, y'all. We're talking about the same government that allowed 387,000 veterans to die waiting on appointments. They didn't die because there weren't medical treatments for them or because the VA lacked space. Veterans administration workers simply did not schedule them for appointments before their illnesses killed them. These are veterans. So tough, hardy people. 
some of them suffering from PTSD, many of them ailments that they, they felt they couldn't go anywhere else. These are the same people that this new rash of people like our caller who her name's not Gidget. She's called here before and gotten torn up and, and, you know, so I recognize the voice that so-called Gidget says she wants some government health care. And so all the rest of us should just bow down and take it. No, because we can't afford it. Now we had a little bit more to say about it. And, and this is the totality of what we're dealing with here, that people who shouldn't even be in government at all, people who shouldn't hold jobs for adults. These are people who could probably bag groceries or pro- probably um, like be the worker bees on lawn maintenance team. So they wouldn't use the big heavy equipment. They'd be the ones who come in at the end and like buzz down the the bushes that are supposed to be round, like the evergreen boxwoods and things like that. Um, the U bushes. The, these, these are people, AOC should be a bartender. She should not be in charge of things that are impactful for thousands or even millions of people. People who believe we can have Medicare for all are the kinds of people who they shouldn't even maybe not even do the lawn work like I was suggesting because that's a power tool that that hedge clipper is too much for them. And I know that's something that, you know, people don't want to I don't care what you want to hear. This isn't about what you want. This is about the truth. And the truth is we can't afford it. Here's number two. To provide a sense of the magnitude, uh, the study notes that doubling all currently projected federal individual and corporate income taxes would be insufficient to finance even the lower bound estimate of $32.6 trillion. Now, to be clear, these would not be the total costs of Medicare for all. These would be the federal government's net new costs above and beyond currently projected federal health obligations. Total federal spending on Medicare for all over the first 10 years would be somewhere between $54.6 trillion and $60.7 trillion. Mm. So he just rattled off a bunch of numbers there. And if you're driving in the car or, you know, you're, you're sitting at your desk and you got your coffee and you're like, mm, what all did he say? He said, we can't afford it. <laughs> Have you ever had someone come over to your house and give you a quote for something? One time we had, uh, it, it, you know, back before I was here at AFA, we had a person who was also company that was advertising on the station I was on and they came over and gave us a quote for house painting. And the quote they gave us was so big, I actually burst out laughing because I thought the guy was joking. <laughs> and when I realized, because I was the only one laughing, my husband's face was stone cold anger. He, I know he was thinking, has this man lost his mind? So I said, I, you know, not to be disrespectful, but are you talking about U.S. dollars or are these Chinese or uh, Japanese yen? Because sounds to me like you said he's like yeah that's the number I said but it lasts for 30 years so you only have to do it the one time my husband's like well maybe in 30 years we'll have enough money to pay you that to paint it and the guy was like oh no I you know I didn't mean to be offensive but you know blah, blah. and he showed how he calculated it but it was so ridiculous the price that he quoted so outside of anything we could afford to pay that we just thanked him and he was he was very nice he was a professional he was dead serious about that number and he left and so that experience is similar to what I'm the experience that I'm having about this Medicare for all a government that is currently trying to scramble and figure out how they're going to keep Social Security solvent. And ha- they also are having problems paying for Medicare. They're going to propose Medicare for all the same people. No, I mean, propose it all you want. You know, you can't stop people from talking. Hint, hint. But <laughs> what? 
where do they think that's going? What Martian is going to come here with a big saucer shaped spaceship and hover it over DC and open the bottom up. And instead of beaming people up or beaming down a light beam that, you know, blows the city up, it just dumps cash, American dollars, actual currency that can be used, not, you know, so with in the absence of the alien invasion to dump cash on us, where is this money coming from? So I just keep looking at what we're currently working with and it just does not compute. We don't have the money and we won't have it. Even with a booming economy and more tax revenue coming in every year, it's a record than ever before. We still don't have enough to do this. And I also, I would love to know from Gidget, I I didn't get a chance to ask her. I wonder if Gidget would be willing to defund Planned Parenthood in order to make Medicare for all a reality. Since there are so many different things that we can, um, you know, we could go through the federal ledger and we could line by line eliminate fraud, waste, abuse and unneeded programs. We could sell off all the federal buildings we own that we're not using, sell them off to private companies so they could be used for something else. Maybe entrepreneurs would turn them into hotels or schools or shopping facilities or restaurants, whatever. Just do what it would do. As the kids like to say, do what you want. Just do whatever you want with it. If you can afford to buy it from the federal government, buy it and make it into something that works, that brings in revenue instead of us holding on to it. So would you be willing, Gidget, to let go of the Planned Parenthood funding if that money would go back into the U.S. Treasury and be able to be used for something that you care about, like forcing all the rest of us Americans into government-run health care that would eventually kill us? But would you be willing to let go of that Planned Parenthood funding? I'm thinking no thinking she'd say no we need to fund Planned Parenthood okay so and my response to that is and no you ain't getting no Medicare for all you're not getting it it's not happening they're just running on it because they got nothing left it's it's like listening to it's an insult to loons and nincompoops to say that these people sound like them and I mean you hear what I'm saying there it's an insult um so now I want to go back to Governor Cuomo, who actually said something that I've been saying for years and years and years, which is Democrats have a problem. Their problem is they fail to actually provide results. It's number four. Uh, And they want someone who can actually get something done once elected. You know, the Democrats' problem, I think, has been uh, their failure to actually provide results in people's lives. People can't eat rhetoric. Uh, They need more income. They need more bread. Uh, They need more jobs. And Joe Biden can actually get something done. It's not the politics of symbolism. He will be a person who can have, have a government that actually delivers. So he goes on to smear the president and make some other comments, which is why we only just took this little bit of his comments. But I'm, you know, Governor Cuomo is a Democrat, dyed in the wool. He's from a state that is experiencing extraordinary population loss, and he's not doing anything in his state to fix this reputation that the Democrats have of being anti-opportunity, anti-freedom, and anti-results. He's not doing that. So you, it makes you wonder, well, why, why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he walk by his own talk. If he feels like the Democrats have to show some results, why doesn't he show some results in his own state? Why doesn't he stop the population loss by reforming their government and ending this? um, It's like the taxation. It's driving New Yorkers away. 
I mean, the weather is a little bit of a factor as well. Like when there's a really rough winter, like the one we just had, people will tend to say, you know what, if I can find an opportunity a little further south, I think I'm going to do it. But for New Yorkers, a huge part of everything for them is their identity. You know, they have their Northeastern accent. They have the fact that, you know, they're, they're from New York and they have all of that. And, you know, um, I think it's important for people to acknowledge that even if you take the weather into consideration, Governor Cuomo is another one of those Democratic failures. He's not being held accountable. It would have been fantastic if the person he was speaking to uh, would have said, hey, what about you? You're the governor of a state. You, you impact people's lives every day. Why don't you do some things to improve the lives of your people? That would have been fantastic, wouldn't it? Um, all right, let's take a quick call. Jason in Kansas. Hey, thanks for calling the show. Hello. Hi. Um, yes, I had a question concerning about Social Security. Um, I was wondering how are they going to um, ensure the future of it for like the future generations and stuff? Well, I don't. I actually don't think they know exactly how they're going to do it. I think they're going to wait until the last minute. And then they're going to hike the taxes up. One of the proposals that I shared last segment was about them hiking up the the tax. They could raise or eliminate the ceiling, raise the payroll tax rate, reduce future benefits, change the benefit formula, calculate the annual cost of living adjustments for benefits differently. Um, they could increase the payroll tax. They could do any combination of the above. And so, you know, whoever's in charge, then they'll present it as an emergency and they're probably going to increase taxes. That's what I think they're going to do. Um, and what now people are not fans. Like when I say this, most listeners are, you know, well, not most, we have listeners call in and say, don't, don't say that. That's not fair. I paid in. And I get it for people who are currently within 10 years of retiring, 10 or 15 years of retiring right now, you know, you've been paying in and you've been looking at 66 or 67 as your retirement date. And that's what you were promised. But for people who are my age and below, there should be a whole new orientation, which is you're retiring later because we don't have the money. We spent it. And there's nothing else we can do, but you're going to have to retire later. And when you retire, it's going to be XXX. Like this is the new thing you're going to be on. No one will vote for it. Um, but it, this isn't about voting for it. This is about doing something to stop it from going all the way down to zero. You know. You got to change it. I hate it. I'm not for it. I just, that's the truth. All right. When we get back, we'll have Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation. Keep it here. It's amazing, but true. When it comes to one of America's biggest household expenditures, health care, a lot of people think they've got no choice. People are used to thinking we have to do it this way, but they don't. Yes, you have the freedom to choose an alternative with your health care. It's MediShare, and it costs way less than the alternatives. The typical family saves $500 a month, not a year, a month. And if you're single, this can save you a lot too. And let's face it, a big reason MediShare is 400,000 people strong, it just works. They've shared over $3 billion in medical bills, so they can help share your needs too. Joining MediShare for so many people is one of those things that makes you say, why didn't I do this before? So yes, the time has come for something better. Look into joining MediShare and see why so many people are opting out of the old way and into the new. Why not look into this? Just call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. 
855-PSALM-23. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. The Attorney General, William Barr, caused quite a stir the other day when he concluded the government had been engaged in spying. The sentence that generated the outrage was this, I believe the government spied on the Trump campaign. His statement led to another round of commentators arguing that this was merely surveillance, not spying. But in a recent article in The Hill, Kevin Brock explains that even attempting to make a semantic difference misses what was done. He should know, since he was the former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI and served as an FBI special agent for 24 years and was the principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. He explains that what was unleashed on an American citizen was without precedent. The FISA surveillance allows the clandestine microphone and camera capture of the target at all times in all places, even the most intimate of his daily life. It is more intrusive than even a Title III criminal wiretap for a drug dealer or a mob boss. There really is a major difference between spying and FISA court-ordered surveillance. He says it is the epitome of government power over an individual's privacy. It is the nuclear option in the world of intelligence collection. He also reminds us that the government only uses such an option when surveilling foreign nationals who have been spying on U.S. interest, or sometimes for U.S. citizens who hold security clearances and possess national security information that might be turned over to another country. It has never been used by an FBI director or deputy director to intercept an individual with no clearance or obvious access to sensitive information. Please remember this the next time you hear someone reject the idea that the government was spying on the Trump campaign and suggesting that it was only surveillance. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com, UrbanFamilyTalk.com for the conference that's coming up in June, and AFR.net. Also visit our news site at OneNewsNow.com. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure to welcome Hans von Spakovsky back to the program. Uh, Hans, thank you for joining us today. Sure. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for having me back. Hey, you know, I enjoy our chats, Hans, I have to say. Um, and I am dying to hear what you're going to say about this new found. It's like, uh, you know, finding a beautiful pearl or a prize of great price. The Democrats have located a new issue that they have to attack with both hands and feet. And it's getting felons to be able to vote from prison, regardless of what crime they've committed. Yeah, isn't that isn't that amazing? Um, by the way, right now there are two states in the country that already allow that: Vermont and Maine. And I, I have to say, just from a public policy standpoint, I mean, I think it's just crazy. And the re- the reason is is very simple. Look, somebody who's in prison for committing a serious felony is someone who has basically thumbed their nose at the rules and laws, you know, that we have set up as a civilized society. And why in the world should they get the ability through, through voting to, to make decisions about what those laws should be when they've shown absolutely no respect for those laws to, to start with? 
so I so agree with your sentiment and you've expressed it so well and, you know, succinctly. I've used a lot more words to yell and scream about this. And the other thing that I realized just listening to some audio of Bernie Sanders earlier is that he's trying to equate black people with felons because he says anyone who's been disenfranchised is it's like we have to get the the vote for black people and we did that and now we have to get the vote for felons but i'm not anything like a felon and so i i I resist the comparison and i find it insulting well it is and in fact that that look some years ago um some liberal groups challenged uh florida's felon disenfranchisement law and they made exactly that same kind of argument. Um, and you know what? The judges, uh, Florida's law was upheld. And you know what the judges said in that particular case? They said, um, look, uh, if you're discriminated, uh, if you're discriminated uh, against um, you because of your skin color, <laughs> you know, that, that is certainly something that is uh, immoral and illegal. But felons aren't, uh, they're not in jail. And their right to vote isn't being removed because of their skin color. It's because they, no matter who they are or what their ethnic or racial background, they made a conscious, intentional choice to break the law and, in many cases, harm another human being. Well, and or human beings. Uh, but the other thing is most of them, if not all, knew that in doing the crime, they could potentially lose their right to vote, and they did it anyway. So there, there's no, so that, much that, here, yeah. you know. Yeah. No, it's right. And by the way, to, to illustrate kind of the point I was making earlier, you know, there used to be a third state that allowed felons to vote from prison. It was Massachusetts, which, as you know, is a very, very liberal state. But, but more than a decade ago, uh, they put a referendum um, on the ballot, and the people of Massachusetts voted overwhelmingly to take that vote away. And you know why it happened? It was because some felons <clears throat> who were in the state penitentiary formed a political action group to lobby the state legislature. <laughs> but to lobby them for what? Oh, for changes in the laws that would uh, make it easier for them to uh, get out of prison, get parole. <laughs> but basically, and and even even the Democrats uh, who were in the state legislature thought that was outrageous. And the people of Massachusetts, a very blue state, voted that out of office. Let me tell you the other thing that I think is interesting about this, um, Stacey, and it's this. Remember, the argument you get from Bernie Sanders and others um, – is that uh, particularly those who say, oh, you ought, you ought to get the right to vote back immediately as soon as you get out of prison, which is what some folks say, is they say, well, you've paid your debt to society. Uh, we want to reintegrate you into the community, uh, and therefore you ought to get your right to vote back. But you, you never hear them talk about any of the other rights you lose if you're, you're convicted of a felony. Uh, people don't understand if you're convicted of a felony in most states, you don't just lose your right to vote. You lose a whole series of other collateral rights. For example, uh, you lose your right to own a gun. You lose your right to sit on a jury. In a lot of states, uh, you lose your right uh, to get professional licenses, like you know, be a lawyer, to uh, get a job as a police officer. Mm-hmm. Do you ever hear any of these folks saying that uh, we ought to restore all those other rights to felons, especially their Second Amendment right. No, you never hear that. Well, I like the one where 
felons who often will get law degrees in prison, right? They get bachelors, they get law degrees. They would be able to become lawyers in prison. They would be able to test for the bar and become practicing attorneys in prison. Because if right. I, I, I kind of feel like, Hans, if this is one of those slippery slopes, like allowing 16-year-olds to vote, which is utter lunacy, would mean that we would have to possibly allow 16-year-olds to emancipate themselves more often under more free circumstances instead of kind of restricting that. We'd also have to entertain the idea of allowing them to join the military at 16, to drink alcohol at 16, uh, to do a lot of different things that 16-year-olds can't currently do. So it's an interesting thing that they're saying, let the felons vote. Well, why not let the felons move around freely? One of the primary things you lose when you commit a felony is your right to freely associate and to freely move about the country. Why not just let them be felons and serve out their prison sentences with ankle bracelets and let them roam around? Uh, you know, what is the purpose of incarcerating them if they're going to get to vote and do all of these other things? Uh, I, I I don't think a lot of Democrats support this. To be honest with you, I think a lot of, you know, even leftists, people who I wouldn't say they're really Democrats, they're leftists of some sort, don't think this is a good idea. So what where do you see the point of this being for Bernie Sanders? Uh, I, I think he just believes I, I think that's his ideological perspective. And uh, the fact that it's it's a bad idea and that that uh, what wasn't the question asked of him does he think uh the the terrorists who exploded the bomb in Boston uh, mm-hmm. during the marathon should be able to vote and you know his his whole answer to all of that is yeah he doesn't care what crime they've committed they ought to be able to vote and and I, I agree with you the vast majority of the american people do not agree with that it doesn't matter what their political background is so at this point what are the legalities like let's just say he was able to get something like this because he's never passed any bills he's never had any success in that arena but let's say he was able to get something like this through what would it would it be unconstitutional i mean it's just i just can't believe Uh, congress congress has no power to pass a bill uh that would give felons the right to vote and and the reason for that is that the 14th amendment to the constitution which as you know is one of the reconstruction amendments passed Mm -hmm. after the end of the civil war the 14th Amendment specifically gives states the right to uh, remove the ability to vote from someone who engages in uh, treasonous behavior or other serious crimes. So Congress can't, by statute, overrule a constitutional provision. The only way the federal government could say that felons get to vote from prison is if they passed a constitutional amendment. Awesome. Okay, so that was, that's what I've been looking for. <laughs> <laughs> because I've been trying to figure out because, you know, crazier things have happened. AOC is a member of Congress. Um, Talib and Omar are both members of Congress. I mean, I, when I look right. around me and I think about stuff that that can't happen, some of that stuff's already happened. And so I, I feel like I want to know that there is some protection that liberals can't knock down. They don't have the Supreme Court anymore, but they could at some point again in the future. So the Constitution protects us from this lunatic idea that he's pushing. Well, you're right, and and this is not a gray area. You know, there are some constitutional issues where, you know, it, it's it's not clear. But this is absolutely clear that Congress can't do this. This is, this is within the power of the states. But Stacey, that has not prevented the Democrats from trying to do this through Congress. Every single year for the past, I, I don't know how long, there have been bills introduced in Congress by Democrats 
to pass a federal law that would uh, automatically uh, restore the rights of felons to vote the moment they're out of prison. And so uh, these bills have been introduced despite the fact that even if they were passed, they would be blatantly unconstitutional. Not to mention the fact that studies show, Hans, that uh, felons aren't the most, you know, meticulous voter group. Like they, they weren't voters before they committed the felony. They're not usually meticulous voters when they get out. The only ones who really want to do it are the ones who they've, they've rehabilitated themselves and then they petition their governor to get their rights back. It's it, The process actually is working great. Well, in fact, that's why, uh, you know, some states like Virginia uh, and others, Florida used to have it, um, they have waiting periods. And having a waiting period is actually a smart idea because the recidivism rate of felons is unfortunately very high. Within five years, 75% of felons are back in prison. So actually having a waiting period before you restore the vote to make sure that the, the, that the felon really has turned over a, a new leaf, changed their life, that's actually a good idea. But those, those waiting periods are, are going by the wayside as uh, liberals all over the country push to um, automatically restore the right to vote the moment folks step, step out of prison. This is a bit of a opinion question, but Hans, what exactly, like reputationally, do, do you see any, any, any chance that Americans would kind of just see a pattern here with the Democrats where they want illegals to vote, they want felons to vote? They, a lot of their policies cater to people who are outside the mainstream of America do you think there's any chance Americans will start to put that together and say, you know, these people don't really represent me as a person? No, I, I think there is. I, I, I think when folks look at uh, statements like Bernie Sanders has, has made or they look at things like uh, San Francisco, you know, not too long ago, became the largest city in the country um, to pass a an ordinance that now allows um, – non-citizens, including illegal aliens, to vote in local elections. I think folks look at that and uh, they, they see that, that that is a real problem and not something that they agree with. Mm. I hope it's more, uh, more people are waking up to that and getting, getting a real clear uh, image of, of exactly what these people are putting out there. I want to say thanks again for your time today. I know you're super busy, but you, the heritage experts especially – of your, of your kind, uh, very, very, very important for us to have you on to kind of explain exactly what can and can't happen with these ludicrous proposals that are coming out of uh, D.C. on the left side. Well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you again soon. It's Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Great to have you on the show today. Um, I, I got to say, it is comforting to hear that they're constantly pushing this and that it, it is unconstitutional. But it, I still think, I will reiterate, um, HB5, which we did discuss in last hour, we were talking about this so-called Equality Act, which notice how the bills that the Democrats put forward are always, they always say, the, the title of the bill is always something that you, you just can't disagree with something that's called the Equality Act, couldn't you? I mean, why would you want to? It's just nonsensical to disagree with it. But then when you dig down into it as... We just heard from Rob Chambers, it, it would violate the constitutional protection of religious liberty for all Americans, not just institutional churches. And so we have to stop it. 
So I'm going to give that number one more time. Um, I'm looking here on my little switchboard thingy, which I really enjoy having this thing. It's so helpful. Um, 202-225-3121. That's the number we want you to call and ask to speak to your congressperson. Uh, 202-225-3121. If we could get 10,000 calls from AFA listeners to their Congress people, that would be significant. And um, I know we're not all in the same place. We're in, you know, over 30 states across the country, but it would be so important and significant for us to do that and to be able to then watch their reaction. And remember, these people, they're elected. We have to govern them. We have to take, take the control back and let them know what we will and will not tolerate. So we just have a minute left here, and I know we were going to talk about um, the Mark Meadows, the Republicans eyeing criminal referrals for two or three individuals connected to Fusion GPS, and we'll get to that in the next segment. Um, I just want to draw your attention to this story, and, I'm, and I need to look and see if I have that link put up on uh, the Facebook page. I'm not sure if I did. And a lot of times it'll go up on Twitter, and then I'll forget to cross post it to Facebook. So. Bear with me there, but this is a story is Teen Vogue pushing prostitution as a legitimate profession like a medical doctor. And Teen Vogue, their paper version has since gone out of business. And so now they publish Teen Vogue only online. But a lot of teenage girls look at it. And uh, the feminists are actually enraged because they had this Friday op-ed called Why Sex is Real Work by some person whose name just looks like a bunch of letters jammed up together. And he was talking about this tourist destination. It's a sex tourist destination in Amsterdam is going to bar. They want to legally bar guided tours through the red light district, but many prostituted persons are opposing the ban. And so there's, there's some stuff here. I don't want to say on good Christian radio, but if you can think about what this is about, it's about people who they try to act like it's so liberating for women because women are primarily the ones who are engaged in prostitution as, as the, the, I feel they're the victim. Um, but what is happening is that they want to legitimize this. So instead of seeing it as a negative, they would say, Oh, she's, you know, that's just her job. She just dances nude, you know, that type of stuff. That's not what God has called us to. And he hasn't called us to justify it or legitimize it. And especially not to teenagers. So I'll put this story up for you. Uh, You can read it for yourself and make sure your kids aren't going to Teen Vogue. I mean, that's the least we can do. All right. When we get back, we'll have more. Stay there. Life is never picture perfect. Human beings come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, and abilities. No matter how much we plan, no matter how much we think we're prepared, the unplanned happens all the time. It's how we respond to the unexpected that shows our true humanity. But many do not see the value of every human life. Too many are willing to discard those who don't fit the picture of perfection. Abortion destroys the chance to love and to be loved. We never know what will fill the frames of our lives or how empty those frames can be when we allow exceptions. 
is a gift. Learn more at www.radiance.life. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called TuneIn. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. Why engaging our kids is so important. Mm. Why it's so important that we don't make them feel like they are a burden, like we just can't wait until they're out of the way. Like the proven fact is, is that if we disregard our children as they are growing, we are really risking their adherence to the faith as adults. Airing the Addisons, weekday morning, 6 to 8 Central on Urban Family Talk. The Dean's List with Janice Dean. An NFL player who rescued a former teacher makes today's Dean's List. Martha Isabel had been dressed up and on her way to church when she got a flat tire on a highway in Lakeview, South Carolina. Luckily for her, 23-year-old Darius Leonard of the Indianapolis Colts was driving by just as her tire popped. Believe it or not, Isabel had been Darius's high school biology teacher. She admitted she had been a little harsh on him back in the day, but regardless of his antics as a class clown, she was always fond of her former student. Isabel says Darius was quick to change the tire and careful to make sure everything worked. The high school teacher says she is particularly grateful for his actions because she had been taking care of her father, who is currently battling stage four cancer. So not only did he save Isabel's father the trip, he also made sure that she was in time for mass. Well done, Darius. You are a star with us and you made the Dean's List too. Janice Dean, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And we first heard that the special counsel's decision not to decide the obstruction issue at, a meet, uh, at the March 5th meeting when he came over to the department. And we were frankly surprised that, that they were not going to reach a decision on obstruction. And we asked them a lot about the reasoning behind this and the basis for this. Special counsel Mueller stated three times to us in that meeting in response to our questioning that he emphatically was not saying that but for the OLC opinion, he would have found obstruction. He said that in the future, the facts of a case against the president might be such that a special counsel would recommend abandoning the OLC opinion, but this is not such a case. We did not understand exactly why the special counsel was not reaching a decision. And when we pressed him on it, he said that his team was still formulating uh, the explanation. Once we heard that the special counsel was not reaching a conclusion on obstruction, the deputy and I discussed and agreed that the department had to reach a decision. We had the responsibility to assess the evidence as set forth in the report and to make the judgment. I say this because the special counsel was appointed to carry out the investigative and prosecutorial functions of the department and to do it as part of the Department of Justice. The powers he was using, including the power of using a grand jury and using compulsory process, exist for that purpose, the function of the Department of Justice in this arena, which is to determine whether or not there has been criminal conduct.
Mm. So the determination of whether or not there was criminal conduct um, is, is something that has to be done. And I, I think it's important for us, all of us as Americans, um, to kind of be able to determine when something is done, when something's over. And I'm saying that because I know I've had some Democrats say to me, well, you didn't mind dragging out the Benghazi thing forever. And we had a report back that said that, you know, Hillary Clinton was no more responsible for it than anyone else. And, and I'd say, okay, um, okay, fine. If, if, if you want to level that at Republicans, you feel like they should have dropped it once Congress declined to do anything with, with Hillary Clinton or Susan Rice or any of them, even though we know they lied, et cetera, et cetera. But then what about the emails? So it's like, you know, you're saying you want an excuse or a pass on, on any kind of wrongdoing on the left. And then you're insinuating that the president has done something wrong. And I don't doubt that since they were able to get his private communications and they had people that they called in to talk about their conversations with the president. And I, you know, big girl over here. I understand that when we're talking about managers and people in charge, and they're presented with really bad news that sometimes the communications, they don't look as good as they could in public. But, and, and that's not in any way to excuse or what have this. This is just the reality of the situation. All across America right now in offices where people are getting bad news, the conversations are getting rough. Um, managers may be yelling at their employees because they're now having to do you know, loss of revenue, redoing work, whatever, whatever the ramifications are of mistakes that have been made. People are getting yelled at. People are yelling back, maybe whatever. I'm going into that to say that it's not a surprise to me that for people who are bragging about having read the entire Mueller report that they saw in there, that the president said, this is the end of my presidency. This was, this was a excited utterance. I learned that on those court TV shows, you know, the, not the court TV live shows, but the you know, like um, back when Law and Order used to be a thing. Um, if you watch that, sometimes the lawyer would say, someone would say hearsay, I object because it's hearsay. And then someone else would say excited utterance, the other attorney. And then the judge would allow it because an excited utterance is something that you can relay that someone said in the heat of the moment. And it has veracity because of that. So these excited utterances by the president where he's talking about the end of his presidency or that he wants to fire this one or that one. First of all, they don't constitute obstruction because he just talked about it. That's like saying, I plan on speeding this afternoon. And then somebody showing up at the door and ringing the doorbell and saying, a friend said you were on your live stream and said you said we're going to speed. And so we're here to arrest you <laughs> or we're here to give you a ticket. And you're like, well, a ticket for like how fast over the speed limit? Because I didn't actually do anything. And what, how can you, how can you give me a ticket? That's what they, the Democrats want to do to the president. They literally want to convict him of obstruction for talking about doing things that he never ended up doing things that he had the right to do because he was, he's the president of the United States. That's the other thing. And the last part of, of what I'm flabbergasted about, and I'm going to keep hammering at home because I've not yet had a Democrat. And if you're a Democrat and you want to explain this to me, please do call in 866-963-2037 
866-963-2037. I'm not expecting to hear from you in the last 10 minutes of this show, but I'll still give you the number one more time, 866-963-2037. Please tell me how it's okay for the Attorney General of the state of New York to subpoena information about prior business deals that are now, they're so long gone, like we're talking about Deutsche Bank having to go into their deep storage files. And here's the other thing. For loans that are still ongoing, they, they maintain records, which means she's looking into business dealings that may have originated years and years ago, but are still currently ongoing, loans that are still in process. How is that possible that she can just subpoena those things without having probable cause? I mean, we've all watched enough of this stuff on TV to know that a lot of times when someone wants to go on a fishing expedition, the judge will say, I'm not going to authorize a fishing expedition. I'm not going to give you the right to go comb through this person's history. You need probable cause. How are they connected to this thing? But connected to what? She's not looking for obstruction of justice or collusion with the Russians. She's the AG of the state of New York. So she's just going to go comb through their bank records and their, and their loans just to see if she can find anything. In other words, malicious prosecution, witch hunt, attacking and harassing the president of the United States. Excuse me, I just need to take a quick sip of water there. So I'm not, again, there isn't any part of me that wants to hide or shield the president from being prosecuted for wrongdoing. But we are talking about, like, imagine if it had been um, the same type of behavior done towards Barack Obama. We're going to comb through his records. We're going to look through everything he's ever done, every loan he's ever had. Every, you know, he wouldn't even allow the American people to read his law review articles. Things he wrote. Nope, he sealed them up. His records from his grades sealed them up. Democrats said it was fine. It's fine for him to seal that stuff up. He has every right to say you can't look at it. And my response to that is, wow, okay, so that's where we are. Seal everything up. So I said we would get to this. I want to go over this. Um, you got Mark Meadows. He says the Republicans are eyeing criminal referrals for two or three individuals who are connected to Fusion GPS. Now, this is an interesting development. House Republicans are planning to submit criminal referrals against Fusion GPS associates. This is according to North Carolina Representative Mark Meadows. Now, he was speaking at an event hosted by the Washington Post, and he said that he has great concerns with how the Fusion-funded steel dossier was used in the investigation of President Trump. He did not identify the targets of the referrals, but Republicans have accused Fusion GPS founder Glenn Simpson of making false statements during his testimony before the House Intelligence Committee in November of 2017. So, again, you know, uh, there's a possibility that these people, these two or three individuals had potentially given false information, false testimony to Congress. Um and this, it's kind of fascinating because that would be the first time in the past two years or so that we have the opportunity to see someone who's not a Republican prosecuted for something that they've done wrong. And we know just offhand that Clapper lied to Congress. We know that. Um, and we know that Hillary Clinton lied to Congress and that lying to Congress is a felony. So the question is, 
what are they going to do about it? Are they going to let it go? Are they gonna, and I just checked, you guys. I just looked on the call screen software. No Democrats calling in to, um, yeah, I didn't think there would be, but I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. So I also mentioned yesterday about um, President Trump saying the U.S. is sending immigrants to sanctuary cities and that it was his sick idea. Now, sometimes I wish he would like tamp down on the whole it was my sick idea thing because it makes it sound as if it's a retaliatory gesture when in reality, sanctuary cities do deserve these unlawful migrants. Why? Because they say they want them. They say they're sanctuary cities. It's pretty simple. Last month alone, 100,000 illegal immigrants arrived at our borders and he's now saying that he's giving them to these sanctuary cities. And this was right after the National Rifle Association uh, speech that he gave to the members. And, you know, they not only have they actively been considering it, but he says they're already doing it. Now, DHS has not actually made a formal announcement related to sending migrants to the sanctuary cities, and the White House has not responded to questions, of, you know, asking for details about what supposedly has or hasn't been done. I don't know why they wouldn't do it. I said, you know, a couple weeks ago that they should do it, and they should, they should get to it, get to it quick. Now, I also mentioned a bit ago that I saw this video, and I tweeted it out. If you missed the video um, it was making the rounds yesterday. Such an amazing video to watch because it doesn't look like it's a movie. And it, it also is unreal. You've got these private citizens who they were banned from owning guns seven years ago. And so the only people who have guns in Venezuela are the army and the police. Now, opposition members within the country have actually tried to or are in the process of trying to remove Maduro who apparently was planning on leaving, but Russia told him to stay. You see? So they're, they're, they're not our friends. We already knew that, right? Giving up the guns is what the Venezuelans are regretting right now. Interim President Juan Guaido called for a military uprising. He dubbed it Operation Libertad. And, you know, they've been protesting for months, but this is different. This is supposed to remove him. But it's not removing him because... How do you go up against the military? How do you depose a dictator if you don't have any guns? You, you can't do it with your good looks and your positive attitude. You have to have something that you can fight them with. So back in December, citizens told Fox News, citizens of Venezuela told Fox News that they wished they hadn't given up their guns. The 2012 gun ban is what disarmed the Venezuelan citizens. Daniel D. Martino, who's a Venezuelan expatriate, actually was chatting with the Daily Caller about this, and he said it was never easy to obtain a handgun permit in Venezuela. But before 2012, you could do it. It wasn't easy, but you could do it. Under the June 2012 law, only the military and police forces and some security can now have the guns. All right, we do have a caller. I'm not sure if he's calling to defend the Democrats and all that or not, but here we go. Andrew, Alabama, thank you so much for calling the show. Yes, hey, thank you so much for doing what you do. I really appreciate you. I've been listening to you for a few months. I'm a driver, so I listen to you all the time. Uh, I just want to say this. I think it's really funny that the Democrats want to go against Trump 
whenever he was, uh, you know, apparently he did something wrong with his uh, with the accounts, when I, with his business deals. And he's actually a Democrat then. <laughs> you know, oh. they want to go against him. They want to say, you know, they want to go against him that people wasn't changed. You know, they want to say, oh, well, you know, people can't change, do all sorts of stuff. But he changed. He's a Republican now. Whenever he was actually doing something wrong, he was actually a Democrat. <laughs> That is a great point. No. Okay, Andrew, great point. Because we're not sure if he did anything wrong back then. But if he did, it was back when he was a Democrat donating to Schumer and Pelosi. Yes. Fantastic point that you're making. Look, I don't know if the president's actually done anything wrong with his loans or business deals from back then. But what I'm asking is, first of all, where's the probable cause for looking into it? And second of all, um, why is that important now for prosecution? in, In other words, were we looking at things that Barack Obama did when he was hanging out with Bill Ayers of the Weather Underground, a convicted terrorist? We're, that didn't go anywhere because Democrats said in unison, we can't go all the way back and relitigate every single thing he's ever done. He's the president now and he deserves our respect and we need to look forward. And so it had to be let go. So I don't I, I think Andrew makes a good point. Um, if he did anything wrong back then, it was when he was a Democrat, which hmm, interesting. He is a Republican now, Um, and I'm just going to have, I renew my call, pray for the president when you sit down to your meals, when you sit down to lunch and dinner, you know, your breakfast, if you're a breakfast eater, just ask the Lord to bless him and to protect him and keep him and the entire administration, and that he would give wisdom to all of our elected officials and that revival would break out in Washington, D.C. I mean, break out break out, rise up, run over, overflow, all of that. God bless you, citizens. Have a great evening. More Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk tomorrow.